1: I was extremely aware of the fact that tragedy and comedy are not two different planets. They are not two different worlds. They are no more than two different windows through which we can observe the same landscape. And I made the reader in this book. I tried to make the reader observe the life of this child both through the tragic window and the comical window at the same time
2: even after the morning period was over when the flat was finally empty and my father and i locked the door and were alone together we hardly talked to one another except about the most essential things the kitchen door is jammed there was no post today The bathroom's free, but there's no toilet paper. We also avoided meeting each other's eyes, as though we were ashamed of something we had both done, that it would have been better if we hadn't. And at the very least, it would have been better if we could have been ashamed quietly without a partner who knew everything about you that you knew about him. We never talked about my mother, not a single word, or about ourselves, or about anything that had the least to do with emotions. And every morning, even on these grey, damp, misty January mornings, at first light, there always came from the soggy bare branches outside the pitiful chirping of the frozen bird, Eliza, ti da di da But in the depth of this winter, it did not repeat the song several times as it had done in the summer, but said what it had to say once and fell silent. I have hardly ever spoken about my mother till now, until I came to write these pages, not with my father, or my wife, or my children, or with anyone else. After my father died, I hardly spoke about him either, as if I were a foundling. A tale of love and darkness.
3: The world comes to life in the eyes of a small boy. The boy, Amos, is sensitive, intelligent and very observant. His world consists of a motley collection of Jewish refugees who have been chased out of all the corners of the world, particularly out of the Europe of the Second World War they want to realize the dream of a Jewish state in a Palestine where they are also unwelcome. The child's parents are two unpractical academics, both of whom have come to Jerusalem straight out of the 19th century, as their son later expresses it. About the father, we know that his great dream of finding his place in life as a professor of literature will never be fulfilled. About the mother, we know that she will never feel at home in her new country, that she is melancholy and fragile, and that, without a word of explanation, she will take her own life at the age of 38, when her son is only 12. About the son, Amos Oz, we know that he became one of Israel's great writers, In his book, A Tale of Love and Darkness, he retells for the first time the story of his relatives, his family, and of modern Israel. The result is one of the most fascinating and gripping books I have ever read. It quite simply astounded me. I decided to travel to the little town of Arad in the Negev desert where Amos Oz lives. Set in a biblical landscape, between the city of Beersheva and the Dead Sea. I wanted to ask him how he has succeeded in preserving the whole world into which he was born and experienced more than 60 years ago.
1: This child is still alive in me. Not all day, not every day, but from time to time the child comes back to life. I think this happens to many of us, not just to me, but many people, when the child begins to speak inside them, they tell this child, shut up, I'm busy, or this is childish, or this is below me. I like to listen to this child. He talks to me, sometimes in my dreams, of course, like everyone else, we dream about our childhood. But sometimes even when I sit in a company, in a long dinner party, everybody talks and talks, and suddenly the little child in me tries to guess who is coming from where. What does he or she look in pajamas or even without their clothes on? How do they look in very intimate circumstances? So I have befriended this child. But let me add... The child's point of view is not the only point of view in the book. I use several pairs of eyes, so to speak. Sometimes it's the adult, the grown-up, looking at the child, while the child is looking at the world. Sometimes it's a broader perspective. The family is looking. The collective memory of the tribe is looking.
3: What is so magical is that, as a reader, I acquire the view of the child... I see the world through the eyes of the little Amos. I experience both the funny and the sad events, and the child I once was comes to life again. I remember how what was inexplicable or incomprehensible in my own childhood stayed in my memory. I knew that in time I might be able to understand and interpret what I had experienced. Somehow retaining mysteries that are not always easy
1: to explain. This is very well said. Uh, often a child grasps something and remembers it. And only after many, many, many years he or she can take this picture, this film, to the dark room and develop it and actually see the picture. It really
3: stays in your head as small scenes from the stage almost.
1: Well, I'm glad you say this. I wanted mm. to write this book in such a way that my reader can see and hear and smell. It was very important for me to convey the flavors and the odors and the stenches. And not only as I remember them, but also as I think, for example, my grandmother received those bizarre, strange, frightening, secretly attractive, maybe, oriental flavors.
2: Sometimes the facts threaten the truth. I once wrote about the real reason for my grandmother's death. My grandmother, Shlomit, arrived in Jerusalem, straight from Vilna, one hot summer's day in 1933. Took one look at the sweaty markets, the colourful stalls, the swarming side streets full of the cries of hawkers, the braying of donkeys, the bleating of goats, the squawks of pullets hung up with their legs tied together and blood dripping from the necks of slaughtered chickens. She saw the shoulders and arms of Middle Eastern men and the strident colours of the fruit and vegetables. She saw the hills around and the rocky slopes and immediately produced her final verdict, the Levant is full of germs. They say that the very next day after they arrived, she ordered my grandfather, as she did every single day they lived in Jerusalem, winter and summer alike, to get up at 6 or 6.30 every morning and to spray flit in every corner of the flat to drive away the germs, to spray under the bed to spray behind the wardrobe and even into the storage space and between the legs of the sideboard and then to beat all the mattresses and the bedclothes and the Eiderdowns. In the context of her constant war against the germs, Grandma used to boil fruit and vegetables uncompromisingly. She would wipe the bread twice over with a cloth soaked in a pinkish disinfectant solution called Kali. After each meal, she did not wash the dishes but gave them the treatment normally reserved for Passover Eve by boiling them for a long time. My grandma Shlomit boiled her own person, too, three times a day. Summer and winter alike, she took three baths in nearly boiling water to eradicate the germs. She lived to a ripe old age, the bugs and viruses crossing to the other side of the street when they saw her approaching in the distance. And when she was over 80, after a couple of heart attacks... Dr. Kromholtz warned her, Dear lady, unless you desist from these fervid ablutions of yours, I am unable to take responsibility for any possible untoward and regrettable consequences. My grandma did not give up her baths. Her fear of the germs was too strong for her. She died in the bath.
1: I'm a great believer in the sensual function of language language can be extremely sensual if played in the right way because language is a branch of music in mm-hmm. the end it's about sounds and I tried to write in a total awareness that my book is not only a work of literature but also a work of music but also the visual make people see make people touch the texture of bygone materials. This is my response to death. I know I'll have to die. And when I die, the whole world will go off for me. But I want to save from death and from oblivion the sense, the texture of objects which no longer exist. And Mm -hmm. the smells of food which was consumed 60 years ago. And the Atmosphere and the color and the feel in this. What
2: does my memory begin with? The very first memory is a shoe, a little brown, fragrant new shoe with a soft, warm tongue. It must have been one of a pair, but memory has only salvaged the one. A new, still slightly stiff shoe. I was so entranced by its delightful smell of new, shiny, almost living leather and of pungent, dizzying glue that apparently I first tried to put my new shoe on my face, on my nose, like a sort of snout, so I could get drunk on the smell. To this day, whenever I strain to push my foot into a boot or shoe, and even now as I sit and write this, my skin re-experiences the pleasure of my foot tentatively entering the inner walls of that first shoe the trembling of the flesh as it entered for the first time in its life this treasure cave, whose still yet soft walls enfolded it caressingly as it thrust deeper and deeper, while my mother's voice, soft and patient, encouraged me, push, push just a bit more. One hand gently pushed my foot deeper inside, while the other, holding the sole, lightly thrust against me, apparently opposing my movement, but really helping me to get right inside until that delicious moment when, as if overcoming a final obstacle, my heel made one last effort and slid in so that the foot entirely filled the space. And from now on, you were all there, inside, enfolded, held, secure. And already Mother was pulling the laces, tying them, and finally, like a last delicious lick, The warm tongue stretched under the laces and the knot. That stretching that always gives me a kind of tickling sensation along the instep. And here I was, inside, clasped, held in the tight, pleasurable embrace of my very first shoe. It's a sexy
1: scene, should be x rated.
3: (laughs) Yes. The main theme of the book is loss. What happens when a child loses his mother and is convinced of his own guilt? Perhaps he was not worthy of being loved. But also the loss it means for the whole of the Jewish people and for Europe, that six million Jews were murdered and half a million forced to leave our
1: continent. And more. And more, yes. Because this is not just having to leave. This is not just, let's say, a normal divorce. This is an unrequited love, a Mm. one-sided love. Mm. Those people, my parents, my grandparents, the secular, half-assimilated European Jews, they loved Europe 70 or 80 years ago. They loved Europe more than any other European at that time loved it. He loved it in a way in which only an outsider can love. Hmm. They wanted to be at home in Europe. If they had a dream, their dream was to be at home, not in Poland, not in Russia or in Lithuania, but to be at home in Europe. And this dream had not just uh, faltered. It ended with a colossal crime. My parents, my grandparents, they were violently kicked out Fortunately for them, because if they would not have been violently kicked out in the 1930s, they would have been murdered in the 1940s. This left a trauma, an injury which cannot heal, not even in my generation, not even in the generation of my children, and in a strange way I even find with my grandchildren, certain traces of the longing for Europe. Ask an Israeli child fourth generation Israeli, like my grandchildren. They are not the children of immigrants. They are not even the grandchildren of immigrants. They are the great-grandchildren of European immigrants. Ask them to draw a house. They will draw a little house with door, two windows, slanted roof, and smoking chimney. There are no smoking chimneys in Israel. Very few. And the chimney with the smoke comes from the bequeathed longings of their great-grandparents. That's how far this injured love travels. Anyone who does not understand this will never understand Israel.
3: Mm. So will it ever heal, do you think?
1: Ever is a big word. You know, I start my day every morning by taking a walk into the desert. This is a very good education for me to walk in the desert because when I come back and turn on the radio and I hear this or that politician using the words forever, never, for eternity, I know that the rocks out there are laughing. One should be very careful with the word forever in this country, especially in the desert. Yes, it will heal one day. How long it will take, I do not know.
3: In Amos Ozzy's book, The Portrait of the Other, in the sense of my fellow human being, who is not as I am, but for whom I bear a responsibility of which I cannot rid myself, that is, the sense in which the philosophers Emmanuel Levinas and Martin Buber use the other. In Amos Ozzy's text, he or she is often an Arab. As in the story of the warm father figure who saves the three year old Amos when he is really in trouble. He has got lost in a crowded bazaar and wandered into a dark cubbyhole into which he has been locked by mistake.
1: Watch time. Watch time. <laughs>
2: A brown man with big bags under his kind eyes, neither young nor old, with a green and white tailor's tape measure round his neck, and both ends dangling down onto his chest. He moved in a weary sort of way. His brown face was wide and sleepy, and a shy smile flickered for a moment and died under his soft, grey moustache. The man eyed me for a moment, not through the lenses of his glasses, which had slipped down his nose, but over the top of them. And after scrutinizing me closely and hiding another smile, or shadow of a smile behind his neat mustache, he nodded to himself two or three times and then reached out and took my hand that was cold with fear into his warm hand, as though he was warming a freezing chick, and drew me out of that dark recess, raised me high in the air and squeezed me quite hard to his chest. And at that, I began to cry. When the man saw my tears, he pressed my cheek against his slack cheek and said in his low, dusty voice, pleasantly reminiscent of a shaded dirt road in the country at dusk, in Arab's Hebrew, question, answer, and summing up. Everything all right? Everything all right. Okay.
1: Being an only child, living really in a world of grown-ups, very enigmatic, it's a little bit like to be an alien. You have to be curious for survival. In the course of years, I also developed the view that curiosity has a certain ethical value. I'll put it stronger. Now I believe that curiosity is a moral imperative. Lack of curiosity is the cradle of fanaticism. Mm. A fanatic is never curious. A fanatic is a walking exclamation mark. And I was raised as a little fanatic in a very nationalistic, very sloganish milieu. So curiosity saved my life. They say the English saying is that curiosity killed the cat. This cat here sitting opposite from you, this cat breeds and thrives on curiosity. It's my vitamin. It's my life uh, liquid.
3: Amos Oz grew up in a world of books. The whole of the little moldy basement flat in Amos Street in the Kerem Abraham quarter of northern Jerusalem was full of books in innumerable languages. His father read books in 16 languages, his mother in eight. This was a world from which Amos later distanced himself. When he was 14, after his mother's death, he moved from his father's house to a kibbutz, where he was to stay for 30 years and to find love and have three children. He also changed his surname from Klausner to the Hebraic word for strength, Oz. But much earlier, as a little six-year-old, he experienced the best day of his life when he was given a bookshelf of his own at home to do with as he wanted.
1: This was maturation. This was the equivalent of the first sexual experience. I had my own experience, my own way with books. Oh yes, this this business of sitting now in a room full of books is the irony of my life, because I rebelled against my father's world. I rebelled against my father's family world, against this bookishness, this overly intellectual milieu, this world of scholarship and footnotes. I wanted to become a simple, uncomplicated tractor driver. (laughs) Mm. In fact, I wanted to become everything my father was not and to cease being everything he was. He was an intellectual. I decided to become a farmer. He was a scholar. I decided to become a socialist uh, kibbutznik. He was short. I decided to become very tall. It didn't work somehow, but I decided. I tried. Now I sit in a room surrounded by books doing exactly what my father wished for me to do, is, writing even more books. But even when I rebelled against him and I drove the tractor, I was still fulfilling one of his dreams because part of him dreamt that his son will become the new type of Jew. Simple, tough, sun-tamed, strong, self-confident, the opposite of the insecure diaspora Jew. So at some point in my life, it dawned on me that I cannot rebel. Whatever I do, I will be leaving a scenario prepared for me by my father. That's when I stopped crying and start laughing. <laughs> That's where a sense of humor comes into the business. So, very often, you get what you don't ask, don't ask for. And what you ask for, you don't get. And what you get, you don't appreciate. And what you appreciate, you don't get. And this is part of the game that is being played with all of us, whether it is in profession or in love, or in art, or in in work. That's <laughs> it.
3: <laughs> Amos Ossis, literary forebears, his countryman Samuel Joseph Agnon, a family acquaintance and Nobel Prize winner, because he is a master of ambiguity. Oz says, and the American Sherwood Anderson, who taught him that the world revolves around the hand that writes.
1: He saved me in a very difficult moment in my writing life. I started writing when I was a little kid. As soon as they taught me the alphabet, I was putting together little stories. That was almost heretic. And I used to bribe my classmates by telling them adventure stories in school. But when I was about 17 or 18, I discovered I was in a kind of catch-22. I thought literature is something that takes place in real places. Not in places like Jerusalem or Kibbutz Huldah. So in order to be a writer, I have to travel to New York or London or Paris or Madrid, like Ernst Hemingway, see the world. So I decided that to become a writer, I have to go to Europe. But I was a poor kibbutz tractor driver, and kibbutz tractor drivers don't go to Europe for inspiration. To go there, I had to become very famous and afford it. To afford it, I have to write a book. To write a book, I have to be in Europe first, Catch-22. Then came Weinsberg, Ohio by Sherwood Anderson and made me realize that wherever you are, this is the center of the universe. No one, no place, no event, no banal, provincial, out-of-the-way place is below the dignity of literature. This was a liberating experience. I could get to the same spot by reading Chekhov. But for somehow, for me, it was Sherwood Anderson who liberated my writing hand and gave me this mantra. That which surrounds you is your universe.
3: Now Amosos writes about his universe. One cannot get closer than that. Has he been writing this book all his life? Perhaps it has been writing itself inside him ever since he was little. I mean, it's so vast. I get the feeling that maybe the book has been writing itself within you since ever.
1: It was probably writing itself in me ever since I was a child. Because as a child I felt this strange responsibility to remember, to memorize, to note, to capture, vaguely knowing that one day I will need those things. But then on the other hand, if you ask me 10 years ago, are you ever going to write such a tale? I would say probably not, probably not. So in a sense, it came to me as a surprise. I was writing it all my life and yet it surprised me. That's the answer to your question. (laughs) I think personally, this urge to tell stories and to hear stories, is as ancient as human sexuality. Animals don't tell each other stories and don't fantasize when they make love. They copulate. People fantasize or fulfill fantasies or create fantasies or share and compare fantasies. Storytelling is strongly related to human eroticism, to human sexuality.
3: Retelling an event gives it a new chance, a new light, a new life. But even though the whole of his book is shot through with a deep warmth, a redeeming humour, yet reading it is also heart rending. It reminds me of the words of the Finnish poet Elmer Dictonius: Life is played with heavy stones. And sometimes I think about that when I read your book. It's it must have been very heavy. Also, your growing up, as you describe it, as a lonely child. Not so many children around, and your mother who maybe never wanted to come here. And and the distance
1: growing between the parents. Yes, but the poet was very wise in inserting the word play. Not just the word heavy and the word stones, but the word play. My childhood was, yes, tragic and heavy and full of the burden of stones, but it was also playful, and somehow playful in a wonderful way. I would say my childhood was tragic, but it was not unhappy. It was a perpetual source of excitement and fascination. I could not complain a single moment of boredom. There is poverty and there is fear and there is exile and there is unhappiness and there is disappointed love and there is a lot of darkness, but there is no boredom. Mm -hmm. So when I look back at my childhood, I don't just look back with anger or look back with sadness, but also with gratitude. Those unhappy parents of mine, my father and my mother, both unhappy in a different way, They gave me a very rich childhood, Hmm. for which I write about them in a very forgiving way. There is no vengeance, there is no getting back at them, and there is no blaming them for my shortcomings. Those things you will often find in memoirs and autobiographies. Blame the parents, they were monsters. Blame the milieu, it was terrible. Blame the people, blame the history, blame the circumstances, blame everybody. This is a book without blaming anyone, except perhaps in a remote way those people who kicked my parents out of Europe. Mm. But even that, not in a personal way. I don't know those people. I don't write about them because I don't know them.
3: Yeah. Then do you think somehow that um, if there are any gods around uh, that they gave... uh, mankind's sorrow in order for human beings to become more human.
1: I could have accepted gods who are giving us sorrow in order to make us wiser and richer. I could accept this if this sorrow never included death. Death is not part of the game. Death is not a game at all. The beauty of play all plays is that you can stop it at some point. Mm. You can say enough. This play which ends with death for most of us at least, this is no play. Mm. I, I I, I was not asked to join the game and if I would be asked to join the game which ends with death, I would say no thanks. Hence why I cannot be at peace with the gods. I can be at peace with people, even with Harsh people and painful people and, and selfish people and, and and cruel people sometimes. But gods, no, I'm sorry. They are beyond my grasp.
3: Hmm. What I do marvel at, uh, or for me it's a small miracle, that having told uh, this one thing, Amos Ossi's parents spoke all the languages of the world. They were masters at putting things into words, but they could not express their feelings, not in relation to each other, not in relation to their son. The son is their complete opposite. From where did this gift come?
1: Maybe it's because I am no longer a first generation refugee. And maybe it has to do with the gift of sense of humor. I don't know where this comes from. Neither one of my parents had what I would ca- tell, call a sense of humor. My father was endlessly trying to be funny. My mother definitely had a sense for the grotesque and a sense of irony, but not this kind of light-hearted humor. I don't know where I found it. Maybe I found it in love. Maybe I found it through my wife and through my children and through the fact that I am no longer a refugee. Maybe I had to stand on my parents' and grandparents' shoulders Hmm. to be tall enough to reach the sense of humor. Sense of humor is a great liberator. Sense of humor is also the best antidote to fanaticism.
3: On November the 29th, 1947 at lake success near new york there was a meeting of the general assembly of the united nations its aim was to vote on the recommendation that two states a jewish one and an arab one should be created out of palestine then a british mandate this demanded a two-thirds majority
2: after midnight towards the end of the vote I woke up. My bed was underneath the window that looked out onto the street, so all I had to do was kneel up and peer through the slats of the shutters. I shivered. Like a frightening dream, crowds of shadows stood massed together silently by the yellow light of the street lamp. In our yard, in the neighboring yards, on balconies, in the roadway, like a vast assembly of ghosts. Not a word was heard. Not a cough, not a footstep. No mosquito hummed. Only the deep, rough voice of the American presenter blaring from the radio, which was set at full volume and made the night air tremble. One after the other, he read out the names of the last countries on the list in English alphabetical order, followed immediately by the reply of their representative. United Kingdom. Abstains. Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Yes. United States. Yes. Uruguay. Yes. Venezuela. Yes. Yemen. No. Yugoslavia. Abstains. Then the deep, slightly hoarse voice came back, making the air shake as it summed up with a rough dryness brimming with excitement. 33 for, 13 against. Ten abstentions and one country absent from the vote. The resolution is approved. Then there was dancing and weeping in Amos Street, in the whole of Kerem Avraham and in all the Jewish neighborhoods. Flags appeared and slogans written on strips of cloth. Car horns blared and raised the banner high to Zion and here in the land our fathers loved, shofar blasts sounded from the synagogues and Torah scrolls were taken out of the holy arks and were caught up in the dancing and very late at a time when a child had never been allowed not to be fast asleep in bed maybe at three or four o'clock I crawled under my blanket in the dark fully dressed and after a while my father's hand lifted my blanket in the dark not to be angry with me because I got into bed with my clothes on but to get in and lie down next to me. He said nothing, although normally he detested silence and hurried to banish it. But this time he did not touch the silence that there was between us, but shared in it with just his hand lightly stroking my head, as though in this darkness my father had turned into my mother. Then he told me in a whisper what some hooligans did to him and his brother David in Odessa and what some gentile boys did to him at his polish school in Vilna and the girls joined in too and the next day when his father grandpa Alexander came to the school to register a complaint the bullies refused to return the torn trousers but attacked his father grandpa in front of his eyes forced him down onto the paving stones and removed his trousers too in the middle of the playground And the girls laughed and made dirty jokes, saying the Jews were all so-and-sos, while the teachers watched and did nothing. Or maybe they were laughing too. And still in a voice of darkness, with his hand still losing its way in my hair, because he was not used to stroking me, my father told me under my blanket in the early hours of the 30th of November, 1947, bullies may well bother you in the street or at school some day. They may do it precisely because you are a bit like me. But from now on, from the moment we have our own state, you will never be bullied just because you are a Jew. And because Jews are so-and-sos. Not that. Never again. From tonight, that's finished here. Forever. I reached out sleepily to touch his face, just below his high forehead. And all of a sudden, instead of his glasses, My fingers met tears. Never in my life, before or after that night, not even when my mother died, did I see my father cry. And in fact, I didn't see him cry that night either. It was too dark. Only my left hand saw.
3: At midnight between the 14th and 15th of May 1948, the State of Israel was officially proclaimed. 24 hours later and without the declaration of war, five regular Arab armies, those of Syria, Egypt, Lebanon, Transjordan and Iraq poured into the new country. This war has not yet come to an end.
1: I can tell you that in the end of the day, There will be a painful compromise between Israeli Jews and Palestinian Arabs. Their land will be partitioned into two states, and they will coexist next door to one another, perhaps not in love, but in decent neighborliness and without daily violence. Now, what I said to you, everybody knows. Even people who don't like the idea, they know it, both in Israel and in Palestine. There is simply no alternative to this solution.